This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. If you've been watching the news or listening to the radio, reading books, anything of that sort of thing, uh, even Christian blogs, so on, online recently, you've probably noticed lots of calls for justice. And of course, God is a God of justice, but most Christians are not really aware of how God carries out justice. We're going to learn more about this today as we study Jonah 4, 5. Jonah wants Nineveh brought to justice and takes steps to see if God will act. Now, before we get to this study, I heard this past week from a friend of mine in New Zealand who's using these Jonah podcast studies for her women's small group Bible study. Hi, Naomi. (laughs) And it occurred to me that, uh, oh, and all of of you women in Naomi's group, (laughs) hello to you as well. Uh, It occurred to me that... um, Following her example, maybe you might want to do this yourself and have a small group Bible study based on the book of Jonah or maybe the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis, the way we started off these podcast, this podcast. And uh, by the way, I will, I will eventually be turning these podcast episodes, both on Genesis and Jonah, into a full-length commentary. And uh, so listen, if you use these podcasts in your small group Bible study, let me know. And I will try to get a copy of that commentary sent to you when it's finished. This is a way of saying thank you. Also, um, along with these podcast episodes, you might also benefit from my online courses for your small group Bible study or your theology discussion group or whatever you have. Maybe a home home church even. Um, I have uh, one course on the church itself. More will be coming. Uh, I have two courses so far on the gospel. More will be coming. I have uh, one, one course on the doctrine of election, as we learn about it in Romans chapter 9. And I will soon be putting up a course on prayer. Again, I'm trying to put several of these courses out per year. And uh, listen, if you have a small group Bible study and you're looking for a curriculum, I do not mind if one of you in the group, maybe the leader, the facilitator, whatever, uh, joins the online discussion group and then downloads the audio lessons and the handouts and so on and uses that as curriculum for your discussion. I, I don't need everybody in the group to sign up. So uh, anyway, that's something to think about if you lead or attend a small group Bible study. Sign up, download the audio, handouts, everything else, and use it for cur- your curriculum. And then uh, also contact me any way I can help you. Who knows, maybe I can even Skype into your group sometime and we can do a Q&A or something. That's something you want to do. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash join. And once you join the faith, hope, or love discipleship group levels, you gain access to all of the online courses at no additional charge. Okay, sound good? See you there. Now, uh, let's turn to our study of Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, as, as we turn to Jonah 4, 5, just a little bit of background information might be helpful. Lots of people see, lots of scholars see that this section of Jonah is parallel to a similar situation experienced by the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Uh, lots of people think that Jonah here serves as sort of a parody of Elijah. 
All right, so so there's similarities, but where Elijah's actions were righteous and holy, Jonah's are sort of self-righteous and arrogant, okay? There's a difference in attitude. Uh, however, Jonah may have good reasons for his dis- disgruntled behavior, all right? You go and look at Elijah, his behavior in 1 Kings 18 and 19. Elijah also wants to die, sort of as we're seeing Jonah does, but uh, Elijah's death wish is due to the fact that he publicly humiliated and then killed the 450 prophets of Baal. Remember that on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18? And so now in 1 Kings 19, his life was under threat by Queen Jezebel. Remember her? Uh, And yet, despite his victory over those 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah realizes he's no, no better off than he was before. So he's like, well, what did this accomplish? Nothing. I'm still, my life is still threatened. There's still nobody turning to worship the one true God, Yahweh, and so on. So he sits in the shade of this broom tree and prays that God might take his life. That's 1 Kings 19.4. And so very similar circumstances to what we see going on here in the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah feels that he's a, a bit worse off than Elijah. All right, it is true that Jonah is sort of parroting. He's saying similar things as Elijah. Uh, and this is because Jonah thinks that he has more cause to wish for death than Elijah did. From Jonah's perspective, at least Elijah was successful in killing his enemies. Jonah's prophetic ministry to Nineveh, well, they repented, but it is a dismal failure from Jonah's perspective because nobody, at least nobody so far, has died. So it's interesting, and often overlooked, by the way, Elijah's victory over the Baal, the prophets of Baal, is often held up as this great victory of God over his enemies and so on. Have you ever noticed, though, that God never commanded Elijah to do that? God never commanded Elijah to kill all the prophets of Baal. It sort of seems to be something that Elijah did on his own. And um, Elijah later states that he killed the prophets of Baal out of zeal for God. That's 1 Kings 19, verses uh, 10 and 14. And in, in light of my books, The Atonement of God and Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, and just the big debate going on in Christian circles today about the violence of God, it's very important to understand that God didn't command Elijah to kill, to violently murder and kill all these prophets of Baal. And this zeal for God that Elijah mentions, zeal in the Bible, notice this in your studies, zeal for God is always related to violence committed in the name of God. As you read through scripture, notice that. Anytime zeal for God is mentioned, look in the context, look at the actions that is under under view, and it's, it's usually some sort of violence that is being committed in the name of God. And that's what zeal for God is. So zeal for God may not be the best thing, at least not in that way. All right, so nevertheless, though, okay, even though Elijah does that, God protects Elijah's life and provides for him during this 40-day trek of his to Mount Horeb. Uh, And this is where God reveals to Elijah that he is not to be found in the strong wind, the earthquake, or the fire, but in this still small voice. Okay, God is revealing to Elijah what he, what God, is really like. God's not in the violence and the destruction but in the quietness of peace and gentleness, all right? And so I think this all, basically God is chiding Elijah a little bit for killing those 450 prophets of Baal. Now, one has to wonder, 
All right. What would have happened if Elijah had not killed the 450 prophets of Baal? They had seen for themselves that the God of Israel was more powerful and more responsive than their God, than Baal. Doesn't it seem that since they had seen that, observed it, witnessed it firsthand, that many of them might have converted to, to the worship of Yahweh alone? I mean... The people who were there witnessing, go look at 1 Kings 19.39, the people who were there witnessing this, many of them converted and started worshiping Yahweh instead of Baal. And so, if, if the prophets had not been killed and had been converted, isn't it possible also that many of them would have returned, maybe also converted Queen Jezebel, right, so that she would have learned from Elijah? rather than seeking to have him killed out of revenge for killing the 450 prophets of Baal, we're never going to know. This whole theory is 100% speculation because we don't know what would have happened if Elijah had not killed the prophets of Baal, taken the way of vengeance and violence himself, which of course then led to threats on his own life and escalation of violence, right? And uh, just this future escalation as kings and prophets continued this cycle of violence against enemies. Now, by the way, uh, many, some might point to this statement of God in 1 Kings 19, uh, verses 15 through 18, about how various kings and prophets will kill the worships of Baal. You need to understand, God is not saying, this is what I want to happen. God is saying there, this is what will happen. Okay? It, it, it's, 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 uh, he's not prescribing this, he is describing it. All right? He is predicting, he is not commanding. All right? God is stating what will happen, he is not stating what he wants to happen. So God's primary activity was to protect the 7,000 Israelites who had not yet bowed to Baal. That's what's going on there. Anyway, uh, it's, it's very interesting to compare 1 Kings 18 and 19 and Jonah 4, all right? Because there's so many similarities here. But the one difference that uh, was the, ba- the Baal worshippers are killed while the people of Nineveh are, sp- are spared, it leads to the same result from the prophet. Both Elijah and and Jonah are angry, and they want to die. Okay, that's the main difference. But in both cases, here's the crucial point. In both pay, play, uh, cases, God goes to work on the heart of the prophet, trying to reveal certain truths to the prophet that, that either you know Elijah or Jonah, that they don't know, or maybe that they've refused to accept. With Elijah... God did this by providing food to the prophet for 40 days and then a revelation about himself on Mount Horeb. With Jonah, God engaged him in conversation. We've seen some of that already in Jonah chapter 4 about about why he spared the life of Jonah as well as the life of all the people of Nineveh. And, And we will see more of that as we continue our study of Jonah chapter 4. So let's just dive in there. Uh, we looked last time at Jonah 4.4 about where God asked this question to Jonah about whether Jonah had, where it was, where, where Jonah got angry about, about the good thing that God has done. Jonah didn't respond. He sort of reverts back to giving God the silent treatment. And Jonah 4.5 says that he went out from the city and sat down to the east of the city. And that's that's all the verse says. You might say, what can we get out of this verse? Well, um, quite a bit, actually. 
Now, first of all, let's just explain what Jonah's doing. Here he goes out of the city and he sits down east. What Jonah is hoping is that somehow Nineveh might get destroyed after all. And so rather than go home back to Israel, Jonah, he holds to his conviction in the hope that, that God will reconsider the situation and, and will destroy Nineveh. All right, so now we'll talk a lot more about this, what Jonah is thinking, what's going on in his mind. But it's likely, it's interesting, it's, it's, it's important to note that the text says that Jonah went out to the east of the city. You, you pull up maps of the archaeological sites and digs that people have done on the city of Nineveh and uh, the things that historians have noted about the layout of the city of Nineveh. And it seems that Jonah went out of the what was known as the Shamash Gate. All right. Uh, it was named after the Assyrian sun god, Shamash. And it was the most important gate of the city. Now, what's interesting about Shamash, and I think that's why it's mentioned here, people back then at that time would have known about the Shamash gate, the most important city, a, a gate of the city. And also, of course, what Shamash represented for the Assyrian people. Uh, the Shamash was the sun god. And uh, that's why it's interesting, in the next couple verses, there's all this mention about the sun beating down on Jonah's head. Okay, we'll get into all that in future verses. But the sun god, just like in, in, in every other religion that worships the sun, the sun wor- uh, disperses darkness and brings light. As a result, Shamash, for the Assyrians, was associated with justice. All right, when, when Assyrian people cried out for justice... They cried out to Shamash. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi. This ancient Mesopotamian law code predates even the Law of Moses. There's lots of similarities between the Law of Moses, the Ten Commandments especially, and this ancient law code of Hammurabi. Anyway, this this ancient law code of Hammurabi was uh, said to have been inspired by Shamash. All right, so the fact that the text states that Jonah goes out of the city to the east would have indicated that anyone who knew the layout of the city of Nineveh, that Jonah went out of the Shamash Gate, or the Gate of Justice. And I believe this is important because the writer of this story is showing us that by going out this gate, the east gate, which is um, the opposite of if he, if, if he was going to head back towards Israel, all right, he's heading the opposite direction, that Jonah is seeking justice. He wants justice. He's hoping for justice. Right? But by going east, Jonah shows that he expects judgment on Nineveh. Right? Shamash was the god of justice. And I wouldn't say that Jonah is worshiping Shamash, but, but Jonah is thinking, and we see this all over the place in the text, especially in the conversation that happens in the following verses, Jonah does not think he is getting justice from his own God, Yahweh. By going eastward, he is hoping, it indicates his hope for justice. All right? Now, by the way, going eastward is also a, a literary symbol in the Old Testament for going against the will of God. Um, not always this case, but very often... In the text, if you read about somebody going eastward, and it literally has to say that, that they're going, they're heading to the east, then uh, you can look and, and see that often what they are doing is disobeying God. For uh, example, in Genesis 4.16, uh, 
After Cain murders his brother Abel, it says that he went to the east and dwelt in the land of Nod, to the east of Eden, where he built a city to his own glory. Basically, that's what it says in context. Okay, so he is disobeying God. He already did. He murdered his brother. And then he heads eastward, builds a city. Uh, When Abraham and Lot, for example, when they uh, decide to go their separate ways because of the disagreements among their servants, their shepherds, Lot chose to go east down into the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's Genesis 13, 11. When uh, the Israelites, out of their disobedience, when they are carted off into captivity, they are carted off, carried off to the east. All right? So, um, now, now, lots of people think, no wonder why this is, and there's lots of symbolism and significance to it. Uh, in, in Israel, the east wind was hot. It often brought drought. And sometimes the east wind is a symbol of evil, as evil coming from the east. And so because of that, people think that the travel to the east, to go to the east, is a travel journey into evil. All right. Now, just by what you might say, yeah, but Jeremy, earlier in the text, Jonah went east to, or he was commanded to go east to Nineveh, and instead he went west, but that was actually disobeying God. Yes, that's true, but go back and look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, and the directions are never mentioned. It doesn't say he, God told him to go east, and it doesn't say that Jonah went west. Just the cities are mentioned. And so again, you go back to this point, it actually literally has to say that they went east um, to, to, to serve as this literary signpost or marker that someone is disobeying God, okay? Uh, the direction itself has to be mentioned. Uh, It's a minor but significant point, all right? Remember, at this point in the story, we're wondering where Jonah is at with God. Has he learned anything yet about the character of God? Has he decided to repent? You know, is he going to stop despising the Lord's honor and instead seek to protect and defend God's honor? Well, the text is giving us here a literary signpost, a literary hint of what is going on in Jonah's heart. He went east, out of the Shamash gate, the justice gate. And so this is a literary hint that Jonah is still in rebellion against what God has decided to do. By the way, I should say, if you ever travel east, (laughs) this is not a sign that you're in rebellion against God or anything like that. It's just a literary hint that the Bible sometimes uses to give us an indication of what's going on. Okay, I don't know if you notice, but like in movies and books and so on, authors often use rain, for example— as a sign that change is coming. So if you're watching a movie and all of a sudden there's a rainy scene, well, that means that there's a reversal or a change, a major change that it's about to happen. All right? Um, It's a literary hint about something. Okay? This doesn't mean, though, that if it's raining today for you, that there's some big change happening in your life. Okay? It's it's just a, it's a, it's a literary signpost. That's all it is. Okay? Same, same thing in the Bible. When someone goes east, it's just a literary signpost. It doesn't mean that if you travel east in real life that you're disobeying God or something. That has nothing whatsoever to do with that. Okay? It probably needs to be said. Okay. Anyway, verse 5 goes on that uh, to say that Jonah made for himself a shelter. Uh, again, uh, the shelter was needed. It's, it's very hot in that part of the world. Um, people say it was probably, on average, around 110 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is, Celsius, for, for the people in the rest of the world. And probably humidity was, a, was as low as 2%. Anyway, very hot, very dry. So um, 
he, he makes the shelter. Now, what was the shelter made of? Well, we don't really know. It doesn't say. Maybe, you know, sticks and leaves or something. Maybe uh, I read some one commentator, uh, commentary who, commentator, I should say, who said the shelter was probably made from stones and clay. Whatever it was, probably not very elaborate. Um, by the way, I have a picture in the show notes today. If you go to redeeminggod.com slash Jonah45, I have a picture of what the east of Eden, I'm sorry, the east of Nineveh looks like today. Now, again, the events that we're reading about here took place about 3,000 years ago. So it's possible, quite likely, in fact, that the landscape looked quite a bit different, the topography, uh, 3,000 years ago. But still, I have a picture there that you can see what it looks like today. It's actually fairly green. There's some uh, sort of ponds, pools of water around. So um, you know, and I don't know, it's probably a different time of year maybe than Jonah was there. I just don't know. But if you want to, if you want to look at that picture, bottom line is though, you look at this picture, you realize there's not much there. All right. It's, it's quite barren and there's really not much there for Jonah to build a shelter from, at least not today. Were there trees and other things then, uh, back there, back then? I, I sort of doubt it based on what we read in the following verses. All right, moving on. The word for shelter, by the way, is the Hebrew word sukkah which is also the word used for these shelters that the Israelite people built for themselves for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. You can read about that in Leviticus 23. And again, I think the author here, probably Jonah, is making a some more symbolic references to this Feast of Tabernacles, this Feast of Booths. The, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, reminds the people about the time when they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years living in tents and temporary shelters, and how God provided for them with manna and so on during that time. All right, so we're supposed to look here also how God provided for Jonah while he's living in his sukkah, in his temporary shelter. All right, and then verse uh, 5 says that the reason Jonah built the shelter is because he sat in its shade while he waited to see what would happen to the city. Again, Jonah hopes that justice is going to be done, that God will perhaps destroy the city after all. all right? and, and if so, he wanted to be there and watch it when it happened. Uh, you know, he hopes for a Sodom and Gomorrah-like destruction. And Jonah has good reason to hope for this. Jonah believed that the repentance of Nineveh probably would not last very long, Right? And that seems likely based on what we know about human behavior. <laughs> okay, if God, if, if someone, if you, if you repent of a certain sin because, you know, someone warns you, you keep going that way, then destruction is going to come. And you repent of it. And then, of course, the destruction doesn't come because you turn from your sin. How long are you likely going to stay away from that sin? Well, human nature, history tells us we're likely to go back to our patterns of sin and rebellion. Repentance often doesn't stick around very long. And so Jonah knows this, and so he thinks, well, uh, the people of Nineveh, that was a surface-level surface repentance. They're going to return to their sin and their violence, their rebellion quite quickly, and then God will be forced to destroy the city. So I'm going to stick around and watch for the fire and judgment to fall when it does. All right? Uh, He believes that God will be forced to destroy the city after all. So he makes himself a shelter and uh, is going to sit in its shade while he waits for the fire of judgment to fall on Nineveh. All right, so it, it is ironic, Note just as we close out here, it's ironic that Jonah wants to see justice done 
on the people of Nineveh, right? Going back to this idea of shamash and justice. But in building a shelter for himself to shade himself from the sun, it's, again, sort of a literary device here to show that Jonah wants to shield himself from justice or shelter, shade himself from the harsh judgment of justice. Again, remember, the sun was an Assyrian symbol of justice and judgment. And again, I think this is interesting for you and for me. It's going back to how we started off this podcast episode. We always want to see other people brought to justice. We cry out for justice. God, send justice on our enemies. But usually, we're not too keen about being brought to justice ourselves, right? We want mercy and forgiveness for ourselves. Well, if only people understood why I did that, the circumstances in the situation, I didn't have any choice. You know, then, see, we want mercy and forgiveness and understanding for ourselves, but justice on our enemies. God does want to bring justice. But guess what? For God, justice looks an awful lot like forgiveness and mercy and grace. We're going to see a lot more about that as we pick up next week in Jonah 4, 6, and then as we go on to finish the rest of our study of Jonah chapter 4. Just something to think about today as you think about justice there's all these, you know, social justice warriors online. You can't hardly turn on the news, read a magazine, listen to the radio, have a conversation with somebody today without, you know, somebody calling for justice. And I just wonder if, if our idea of justice looks like God's idea of justice. Justice is a difficult issue. I agree. And I believe that it is right to seek justice. But when we see from God in the Bible that his justice begins and looks an awful lot like forgiveness and mercy, I think maybe this will guide us and lead us to view justice a little bit differently as well. We we want people to pay for their crimes, right? There needs to be reparations for injustice. Um, but, But if we begin to think about justice differently through the lens of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we we will begin to view differently those whom we target with our cries for justice. Something to think about. I wrote a lot more about this, by the way, a whole chapter in my book, The Atonement of God. And also there will be a whole lesson in my online course, The Gospel Dictionary. There will be one entire lesson on justice as well. We'll be talking about that, looking at several passages from the Bible that speak about justice. Um, Both of these, the Atonement of God book and this online course, The Gospel Dictionary, which looks at 52 keywords of the gospel, these would be great small group studies, as I indicated at the beginning of today's podcast. Uh, You can, of course, get The Atonement of God on Amazon. But by the way, if you join my my group, my discipleship group, then uh, you can get bulk copies of the Atonement of God at much cheaper than what Amazon is selling them. So that's something to think about. And of course, if you do join, then you also get my courses, this, uh, this Gospel Dictionary course for free, and then you can take this lesson on justice as well, or uh, teach it as part of your small group, online discipleship group. Anyway, lots to think about today. Think about justice. If you have questions, comments about justice, just go to the show notes section for this podcast episode. 
Go to redeeminggod.com slash Jonah45. That's also where the picture of Nineveh, the plane outside of Nineveh, uh, in modern day anyway, to the east of Nineveh, where Jonah likely sat. You can see that. And uh, there's links to uh, the Atonement of God in the online course. Anyway, we'll see you back here next week when we pick up with Jonah 4.6. And until then, keep following Jesus wherever it is he leads. He leads.